Good morning, holiday morning here, BC Day. I'm George Affleck in for Mike Smith today and for him all week. I uh, can't believe it's it's Monday morning. Here we are. Hopefully you're having a relaxing morning yourselves. And uh, we've got a full show today. It's hard to believe it's a, it's a holiday show because there's so many things going on. In the last hour, we'll be talking about the shooting in Kelowna with Kim Bolin, uh, Vancouver Sun uh, crime reporter. So she'll fill us in on that and give us a perspective of that. We'll also be talking to a social media expert about uh, some of the concerns they have at BC Hydro on Instagram risk-taking. There's been some incidences recently here in Vancouver uh, and around the world that are raising uh, a lot of concerns about Instagram and people taking too many risks out there. In the second hour, between 10 and 11, we'll have Keith Baldry here. He's back this week uh, for Baldry's Beat. So we're talking about the hottest issues in political, in the politics in BC, but also taking your calls. And we'll have a conversation also with a a wildlife expert uh, who will tell us a bit about coyotes and some things we maybe didn't know about coyotes. Uh, in this hour, in the second half, we'll have uh, Chris Sims here from the BC Tax Federa- Taxpayers Federation to talk about budgets, deficits, all those kinds of things. We'll also, if you want, take your calls if you have any questions for Chris Sims. Uh, and up in the second half of this half hour, we'll also be talking about uh, water. How much water is left in those mountains of ours? Are we running out? It's been dry forever. We had like 30 minutes of rain on Saturday and that was it. Uh, is that enough water to fill up the tanks? I don't know. We're going to find out. But first, we're going to talk a bit about um, uh, the Delta variant. The highly contagious Delta variant is surging through unvaccinated populations south of the border in the U.S. But how are things going here when it comes to the Delta variant? Data released by the BC Centre for Disease Control showed genetic sequencing uh, confirmed the Delta variant is, is in 60 percent of BC cases as of July 24th. How worried should we be about this variant? And uh, is this the beginning of a fourth wave? Sarah Otto is a professor and uh, and a mathematical biologist at the University of British Columbia, and she's also a member of the BC COVID-19 modeling group, and she joins me now. Hi, Sarah. Good morning. Thanks for joining me on this holiday Monday. Appreciate it. Absolutely. How, um, so let's just get a clarity on how contagious this Delta variant is, because those numbers are, are crazy, how fast it's, it's, it's taken over. Oh, yes, it's taking over quickly in all, in all of the 50 states and as well in many countries in Europe. And, and estimates suggest that it's about twice as transmissible as well as um, twice as likely to land us in hospital if we get infected. And that's for people who are unvaccinated, assuming. That's right. People who are vaccinated um, have great protection against hospitalization. One of the big unknowns right now is how transmissible Delta is through people that are vaccinated Mm -hmm. without causing severe cases and hospitalization, but still passing through them from person to person. And that could be contributing to the rapid spread, both in the United States and in different provinces here in Canada. Right. So you don't even know you have it, but you're walking around and people aren't wearing their masks and they're not vaccinated. So you're passing it on. How did it it mutate from the original? So how does that work? Just, I know we've heard this before, but just remind me how it actually transforms into this new variant. Every time anything replicates, there are errors, and that mm-hmm. happens with this virus as well. And so pretty much you know, every second person that it passes through, it picks up a mutation. And most of those mutations are actually harmful to the virus, don't help mm-hmm. it replicate, mm-hmm. or, are have, or are completely irrelevant. But every once in a while, it um, will help the virus get into our cells or replicate within our cells. And you know what? We still actually don't know exactly which of the mutations are responsible for this selective advantage of Delta. What we do know is that it transmits better 
and um, some of the mutations make make it easier for it to kind of change and not be recognizable by our antibodies. And so that's what makes it different. I mean, because there there are other variants, a lot of other variants. Um, and I, re- I remember originally when when we were beginning this cycle of this COVID thing, that there was a lot of talk about variants and that they would be it was a good thing. And now it seems like this is a bad thing. So why did this one? There's there's no really way to understand why this one took hold then. No, there, that's right. Because there's uh, at this point so much variation and diversity within the virus because we've been living with this pandemic now for over a year. And most of that is neutral, as I said, or not even really helpful to the virus. But we don't know exactly, except for the fact that this the Delta carries these mutations that affect, you know, it's called the receptor binding domain, mm-hmm. which is the part of spike that allows it, it's the key to get it into our cells. It binds to the ACE2 um, protein and allows it to get inside our cells. So there's a couple changes there that might make it easier for it to get inside our cells. Hmm. So much we're going to learn after this is over, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> you talked a bit about the uh, the vaccines and how effective they are and that you can transmit this potentially while you have the vaccine. And But we talk a lot about herd immunity as well and, and that we need to get to, say, 75% of double vaccine or double doses on the, on the vaccine. Does that data still hold true for the Delta variant? You know, there's so, um, basically we don't know at this point because if there's a lot of transmission, a lot of cases going through vaccinated individuals, and especially, you know, maybe after a few months, your, your initial antibodies are starting to wane, you're protected still by all of the other components of your immune system, but you can catch the disease and pass it on. All of that is to say that it is possible that there's enough transmission among vaccinated individuals that there is no herd immunity anymore. Um, that is, um, we, um, it's still, the, the, the virus can still spread through a population if there are no control measures in place. And so that's why the um, CDC recently changed its recommendations to recommend masks indoors, even for vaccinated individuals, because that's a control measure. Mm-hmm. Another one that we've used in BC that's really helped us is a contact tracing informing people that they may have gotten infected and helping them stay home. But that is tricky, and it's getting trickier. As, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, a lot of people that are vaccinated that are carrying the virus might not even know it. And we're getting a little bit more comfortable. I mean, you don't have to... You, it's, it's quite interesting if you go to different communities around this region, you see different uh, ways of people living their lives in some places, and, and yeah. they're, they're completely mask-free in stores. I know in my neighborhood, still most people are still seem to be wearing masks indoors. Um, so there's real variation. Then we have Alberta, which you know, as we know, announced, nah, we're just going to like wide open. Um, right. That does that concern you? And uh, because we're also Ooh. seeing the UK, where they're saying, hey, it actually is working okay now. And and then you've got Florida. It's like which <laughs> which one of these <laughs> things is right? Yeah, you know, I'm really glad Minister Dick said that we're not going to take this hands-off approach that is happening in Alberta now, that we're not going to stop contact tracing. Mm -hmm. And as you know, we, um, the health um, officials in the central Okanagan did um, issue a mask-wearing order there because of the high rise in cases. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad to see BC is not taking a hands-off approach. You know, we expect to see the vaccination um, uh, become available for children under 12, potentially in September, so rolling out this fall. And that's, you know, I think once we get our kids protected, and that's just a little 
bit then harder for the virus to move from individual to individual because they can't infect the kids. That's, that's when I think that we can start thinking about, okay, um, relaxing control measures. But for the next couple of months, I think masks on. But you're looking at other places like England, UK seems to have, they initially it was a bit, the variant right. was really taking hold, but now they seem to be over the hump and they have, they're pretty much completely open there now. So you could argue, couldn't you, that maybe Alberta's taking the UK approach or is it too soon for them too? You know, it's too soon to tell. And the other thing is it does, it's not really all about what the government orders. It's what people do, uh-huh, yeah. as you said. And there's a lot of variation in, in that. Um, yeah, so there could still be a lot of cautious behavior, even though it's, it's not mandated anymore. The other, of course, big behavioral thing is vaccination. And um, we're seeing across British Columbia that the, those community health districts that have the lowest vaccination rate are where we're seeing the biggest, fastest uptick of Delta. And so I think that's a bit another kind of behavioral um, uh, response that we can have. We can take this as a warning call and say, oh, you know, this spike is serious. I don't want Delta to spread I want our, our communities and our businesses to get back to normal. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go get vaccinated today. I haven't done it yet. I'm going to go get vaccinated today. Let's hope so. Do you think the vaccines, uh, as this thing morphs again, potentially um, will become less effective? Do we have any way of knowing that? We expect it over years to become less effective and a little bit with every mutation that you know changes these kind of sites that are antibodies recognized but Mm -hmm. the good news is that our immune systems are super complex they're like i don't know this amazing machine learning thing except they're biological where they recognize various different parts of the um, protein that's made by our mrna vaccines so it's not just one thing that can change because there's there's still the other aspects of the protein that are recognized by our immune system so that's the good news. It really takes a lot of evolutionary change to completely eliminate our the protection that vaccines provide. Do we think uh, we're seeing a lot of talk about the fourth wave, uh, that even here in BC we might see a fourth wave of some kind, but will it look anything like the first, second, or third waves? Well, yes, we're already at the beginning of that fourth wave, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. um, because we're seeing this spike, and we know the cause of this spike is this highly transmissible delta form. The question will be how many of our communities are going to really suffer from this spike. Um, it, it, as I mentioned, those communities mm-hmm. with lower vaccination rates have about five times higher caseloads um, than those with higher vaccination rates. So it, it's not going to affect all of BC equally. And already we're seeing kind of fewer cases in the um, lower mainland, which has really been a hotspot for cases previously. So we're going to see a shift in where this happens. Hmm. Um, And and communities that might have thought, oh, you know, this is really a disease that's affecting the lower mainland. It's affecting Vancouver, a high-density city. It's not affecting my community. That's not the right attitude because that then leaves this kind of open door for the virus to get into those more remote communities. First, you know, that complacency, but then after that, potential fear will drive uh, maybe more than marketing will drive vaccinations in those areas potentially. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Sarah, for joining me this morning. I appreciate it. Absolutely, George. Thank you. Welcome back. I'm George Affleck in for Mike Smith today. And I want to encourage you to feel free to call our buzz line throughout the show if you've got any thoughts on what we're talking about, if you feel like you want to weigh in and, and, and tell us your opinion. 
always love to hear from you, and we play a selection of those at the end of the show. Our buzz line is 604-331-2899, 604-331-2899. You can also email me, george at cknw.com. The BC government has partially dug itself out of a massive hole created by the COVID-19 crisis, but the province's economy is still nowhere near pre-pandemic levels. Finance Minister Selena Robinson released a financial update last Wednesday that showed BC ended the 2020-2021 fiscal year with a strong credit rating and a lower than projected deficit of uh, $5.5 billion. Uh, she was on Simi Sarah's show the following day and had uh, this to say about why the budget was better than forecast. We certainly saw um, um, you know, more tax revenue come, come in than we expected because people were working. They were, they were, uh, able to pay their taxes. We found that, um, you know, certainly the forestry sector, uh, was very robust, uh, and that was, uh, was not, uh, expected. And the other thing that I think is really important to acknowledge is, you know, ICBC turnaround. That was pretty significant. Uh, we, some said perhaps that it couldn't be done, um, and we did it. And it's now, uh, in the black. And uh, we even gave, uh, I think it's $950 million back in, um, in COVID uh, savings back to drivers. So there were lots of positives that we were able to see um, on the economic front because people did the right thing. So should BC taxpayers feel relieved or is there more to this story? We're joined now by Chris Sims, the BC Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hey, Chris. Hey, thanks for having us on. Yeah, no problem. Great news, right? We're, we're not broke as, as we thought. It's all great news. Happy days. <laughs> Right? Well, we do want to be positive, and so okay. it is. It is good news, you know, to see that it's down to five point five billion. Back when, back in last September, a lot of folks were fearing thirteen billion. So credit where it's due. This is good news. So be positive. But <laughs> I, there's always thank a God catch. there's a but there, Chris, because I was getting yeah, worried for a minute. There's a catch, right? <laughs> so unfortunately, our debt is going up a lot, and mm-hmm. a lot of folks might be scratching their heads saying, "I thought we had balanced budgets before this." Well, we had balanced operating budgets. So what that means is the day-to-day spending of government, that Mm -hmm. part was balanced. That's a good thing. But they're really allowing their capital spending to creep up a lot. And this is what's really key. Mm -hmm. Now that we're in the middle of COVID, if you look ahead to the government spending projections, say for 2023, 2024, they're about the same as they are during COVID. So they're planning on spending at pandemic emergency levels Mm -hmm. when hopefully everything willing, we won't be in, Knockwood, a pandemic emergency. So that's where we're hitting the button saying, hey, folks, you know, we need to tap the brakes here. We can't be spending like this because it costs us a lot of money and interest. Like, for example, the amount that we spend on annual interest, even right now on the provincial debt, could actually hire 4,600 new paramedics and pay them for 10 years. So that's significant money. But people, the, the one thing that quite often is the understanding the difference between capital and operating. And so operating is one thing, capital is the other. So that's investing in long-term things. Quite often when you have a crisis or, you know, economy crashes, government puts all their money in the capital spending to, in, in, you know, put a lot of, in, get the economy going again. Isn't that what this is about? It may, may be pre, post-pandemic, you know, spending that shouldn't be where it's at, but don't we need that to get things back to normal? Mm, depends, right? We actually have a really robust economy in British Columbia, and we have lots of natural resources. Uh, people work very hard. We're not convinced that we need to start taking it from taxpayers and funneling it through possible corporate welfare 
through the government Mm -hmm. in order to give out that money. Because keep in mind, all of that money comes from taxpayers and there's interest on it. And so even right now, when we have low interest rates, it's very low compared to what we were dealing with in the early 80s. A lot of folks remember that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're still spending $2.8 billion dollars a year just on that on that provincial interest rate and then if you look at the federal government level as an example it's just unbelievable their yeah. spending there is just through the roof well, and they have no plans on balancing <laughs> we'll get to the federal stuff in a yeah. bit but because that's even larger uh so what yep. proportion of that is the budget then of, the, of that's to pay down that debt or to pay off the to pay the interest what portion por- well to give you an example that's that's more than they take it well it's around around the same amount that they take in in the carbon tax Right? Mm-hmm. That's around what they take in right now on the property transfer tax, which is a big chunk of change. Mm-hmm. So $2.8 billion right now at rock-bottom interest prices, that's significant money. And that's why I broke it down for an example, because when you start getting into billions and trillions, it's hard to wrap your head around that. Um, but you'd actually be able to hire 4,600 new paramedics and pay them their full-time salary for 10 years based on just that interest charge. And so we're saying usually BC is the better one of the bunch when you compare them to other provinces, and they have been doing well, and that's why we do praise them when they balance their operating budget. But we're putting a little dashboard warning light here saying, guys we can't, guys and gals, we can't be spending like this for the all-foreseeable future. We need to rein it in as soon as possible. And even Nova Scotia has already committed to uh, balancing their budget within four years. We'd like to see a little bit more prudent, balanced budget planning here in BC. But isn't it too soon? I mean, we're still kind of in the middle of this pandemic. Can we cut them some slack? You know, like we need to get back, you know, we need to some, you know, a bit of looseness here while we're making our way through this and all yeah, that is a but, pandemic. you know, two years from now, <laughs> you're still planning on spending this way. Uh, that doesn't sound very prudent or responsible. And so they might be giving themselves room to say, hey, we're coming in way under budget than we thought we were going to. I mean, they do that all the time. I'm hoping that's what they're doing, is that they're over-projecting right. their spending years from now so they can come in and say, hey, look, <laughs> we, we've cut our spending more than we thought we were going to. Aren't we great fiscal managers? Whoa, and if that's yes. the case, fine. But I, I, they really need to get it under control. Yeah, under-promise, over-deliver, whatever yes, the Yes, right? and it will affect you, too, because in the real world, you know, we all understand that it's <laughs> under-promise, over-deliver. But in the real world, it does catch up with you. Yeah. So, for example, S&P Global Ratings have already knocked our credit mm-hmm. rate down from AAA to AA+. Plus, and and that would, does start catching up with you. Totally. And what would 1% or 2% interest rate do to the, the debt load and how that would be managed? How much? Oh, goodness. Would... Yeah, that, so that really starts increasing your, your cost. For those of us who remember, even like, I mean, I remember buying my, buying my first place in the 90s, interest rates were like 8%. And that was great compared to, say, my parents who had it 22% in the 80s. Bingo. So, Bingo. Exactly. And so we just need to start remembering what it was like to pay 8% and then ask our parents what it was like to pay back in the early 80s, around the 20%. And that catches up fast. And that starts really hitting your bottom line. That makes them go into a debt spiral. Um, we have a lot of smart people working in government. They know this. Uh, <laughs> they know better. And so they need to rein it in now while we can afford to do so. Is that why there's more of an appetite for debt and, de- and deficits by the people? Are you surprised that people are seem to be very willing, even, you know, you, know, you look at civic governments, oh, yep. yeah, yeah, tax me more. No problem. We've got to spend that money provincially, federally. There's a more openness and willingness to see more spending when you, that you don't, money you don't have. Is that mainly because interest rates are so low and so it's like, oh, it doesn't seem like much? Or is it, is it a mentality change that, uh, that they've sort of shown that government's presented debt ratios as a, you know, hey, we're not so bad, so you don't have to worry. Mm. Why are we so open to more debt these days? Personally, I think it's a combination of those two things. 
So personally, especially people in British Columbia, because things can get so unaffordable so fast, mm-hmm. uh, people take on a lot of personal debt loads. Uh, you can talk to anybody, you know, any debt financer and uh, somebody who helps with debt. We take on a lot of personal debt. And so the ergo, we're more forgiving of it sometimes mentally with government. But I think what really we need to remember is that we're all on the hook for this. Like the government isn't going to pay this. We will eventually have to pay this, and we will have to pay it with interest. And if it's already that that much money at this low interest rate, you know, heaven forbid when that interest rate goes up. And so this is where we're saying, folks, we really need to focus on this now. And then also when you have to, you, you bring up the cities, and I'm glad you did. Mm-hmm. The province is ultimately on the hook for cities. Right. Constitutionally, mm-hmm. a lot of folks don't realize this. Constitutionally, the pleasure of the province, basically. That's yeah. right, mm-hmm. exactly. So if, say, a city or town went belly up, us as taxpayers provincially and the provincial government in, in B.C. would be responsible Right. for that municipality. And interesting you raised that because the Parliamentary Budget Office turned around and they crunched the numbers for debt for the provinces. And they included the cities and towns in each provincial category. At first, we were looking at them mm-hmm. going, what? These don't really match up with the debt clocks and stuff. And so we called them and they're like, oh, no, we included all the cities and towns, say in B.C., are included within the provincial debt category. And their estimation at the current rate of spending mm-hmm. and the current rates of interest, all that jazz, we won't be out of debt collectively in British Columbia until something crazy, like 2080. <laughs> George Affleck in for Mike Smith. Hope you're having a great holiday Monday, BC Day and all. I've got uh, Chris Sims here joining me, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federations. Feel, feel free to call me uh, and if you have any questions for Chris, 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898, star on your cell. Chris, before the break, we were talking about the provincial debt and deficit and, and uh, the long-term impact of that. Federally, uh, we're talking big numbers here, aren't we? Yeah, we really are. Um, and it's to the point where it's, it's just grim and alarming. I was speaking with our counterpart, uh, our federal director, Franco Terrazano, about this. And in 2018, so before COVID, okay, in 2018, the federal government, led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, spent more money than in any one year of the Second World War, the Korean War, or our recessions. Adjusted for inflation. Adjusted. Okay, I was going to say it. So that yeah. was based just on the, you know, wow, that's a lot of money. <laughs> it is. And it's, it's one of those things where it gets hard to wrap your head around. Uh, and so this is where we're saying, you know, yes, I try to keep on top of, you know, the, the premier and what he's spending in, in Victoria. But what we're really warning about is, number one, make sure you have your fiscal house in order here in B.C. And goodness sake, do not use Ottawa as an example of fiscal management. We were talking before the break of, mm-hmm. you know, what influences people to be able to psychologically yeah. take on more debt. We don't want the provinces taking the lead from Ottawa to say, well, they're doing it. We can't do that. <laughs> well, and you're, we're looking at a th- over $300 billion de- deficit for la- last year, I think, and then we're yeah. looking at, they're projecting $150, $170 billion one for the year ahead, uh, but although they've just extended the uh, extension of the debt um, uh, payments to businesses for another month into October, which some people were calling for. So we're pushing a trillion dollar debt now This the federal government has. Yes, we've rolled over a trillion dollars in debt. So that's a one with 12 zeros behind it. Mm -hmm. To give you an example, to count to a billion would would take you around, (laughs) I forget how many years, 30 years or something. 
to count to a trillion, it's something like 30,000. Right. Like, and it's mind-boggling. Here, uh, put it this way. Uh, there was an expert on BNN the other day who uh-huh. said that we're adding more debt in six years than we have in the previous 152 years combined. Like, we, we have to hit the brakes. And so this is debt that not only my kids, you, my kids' kids, my kids' 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 kids are going to be dealing with if we don't get it under control. But again, this is uh, going back to my question earlier about the provincial debt. Yeah. You know, it's like we're in a crisis situation and, and nothing like this has been done before and the impact on small business. You know, you think if you compare to a war, it's not in some ways, you know, wars can be helpful to business, you know, as far as production and things like that. Whereas a pandemic, we were locked in our homes, everything just shut down. It was quite different, so they, they, the government needed to prop us up. Uh, so it's different. So you can see why the debt might, that, that investment might be much higher. Yes. Prevent, uh, so if we're talking provincially, well, <laughs> not federal. Trudeau. No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, let's, let's leave Trudeau aside because uh, our numbers, like, for example, that was a 2018 number. That was before mm-hmm. anybody had heard the word COVID. So that's not okay. an excuse federally. Provincially, yeah, they were balancing their operating budget. It was, I'll compare it this way. BC was like a reasonably well-maintained minivan. You know, it wasn't fancy as far as, you know, fiscal management goes, but we were rolling along fine. (laughs) Comparing it to the feds is like a pinto that's on fire. Okay? (laughs) So big, big difference here. Our caution here is that, yes, immediately with COVID, with businesses being shut down through no fault of their own, that was something Mm -hmm. that hit them understood. You need to help people and you need to help businesses get through the crisis. Yeah, that's why you save in the good times, right? To help when things go bad. Bing, 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 right? (laughs) And so this is the issue here is that we save in the good times for when things go bad for the rainy day. Mm -hmm. And you have to make sure that you don't extend that crisis mentality after the crisis is over because we can't afford it. I find it's interesting right now. We've got a potential federal election coming. Yep. You've got the carbon tax as an issue, which the federal conservatives, I, I'm not trying to figure out what they're, they haven't seemed to find their footing on the financial side because they seem to come out in support of it. It's very confusing for people. And obviously here in BC, we had our own kind of carbon tax and, and the carbon tax and then where the federal conservatives are landing on this. Yeah. They don't seem to be finding a position that's resonating with their with their, their base. No, well, they had a position. Yeah. Uh, they signed a pledge, all of the leadership contenders, including Aaron O'Toole, signed a pledge with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation mm-hmm. that he would not only scrap Justin Trudeau's federal carbon tax, that he would not create one of his own. And he turned around completely, did a 180, broke that promise, and now he's planning to impose his own form of his carbon tax. And so what's interesting is you raise BC, he's basing it on BC. And so not only will he have his own version of the first carbon tax, he's planning on implementing British Columbia's version of the second carbon tax. <laughs> Some folks call that the, the low fuel standard or whatever it's called. That actually adds around 14 cents a liter per liter of gasoline and 15 and a half per liter of diesel. It's higher than the first carbon tax. Please. So, yeah, they definitely uh, have lost their footing on that issue. And not only did they sign the pledge with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, my team, they went through an entire uh, convention, a policy convention, where they talked about all this stuff. Nary a peep was coming from the leadership circle about reversing a years-long policy on no carbon tax. We had a call from uh, Scott from Maple Ridge with a quick question. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, well, you know, it's an observation. I've been saying this for, for some time now, too. The monetary supply has never been higher. It created out of thin air trillion dollars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't do that without a consequence. And, and I think we're already in an inflationary period. And I yeah. don't know why the economists don't see That's, it. That... Because everything is up. Everything is up. Yeah, and, thanks. you know, you cannot just fill everybody's buckets with 100%. money. Like, 
Yep. Scott, we got to get going, but I totally I was going to ask that question. Real quick, 10 seconds, Chris. Inflation, is, is it, that's a big problem, right? Huge problem. And it's combined with what people understand as the cost of living. And I think affordability is going to be the number one issue going into this election. All right, Chris, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you. Welcome back. Happy BC Day. Happy Monday. Hope you're doing well. I'm George Affleck filling in for Mike Smith today and we've got another hour left of the show. Lots of stuff coming up including your buzz lines at the end of the show. So longtime gangster Kyle Giannis was one of two men shot in Kelowna on Saturday. This is the second time uh, he's been wounded by a gunman in recent months. The Kelowna RCMP issued a warning yesterday saying anyone associating with Giannis could also be in danger. To tell us more, we're joined by award-winning Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Bolin. Hey, Kim. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for finding time today on this holiday. So it's nice that they issued a a warning, um, but does this ever actually work in the criminal world? Well, I think it does. I mean, it does ramp up the heat and maybe helps this guy make a decision to get out of town. Uh, He purports to have changed his life. He's opened up some athletic wear companies. He does these, you know, kind of inspirational YouTube videos. Uh, You know, he's a, a, you know, weightlifter, a trainer. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he's the kind of guy that he's maintaining a very public profile, even though, you know, going back more than a decade, people have wanted him dead. So not maybe the most responsible way to conduct your life, you know, be a little lower key. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, I do think the warnings help. They certainly uh, allow the community to make a decision if they see the guy walking into the Starbucks that mm-hmm. maybe they're going to get out of the Starbucks, right? Because, yeah, you, you say he's been shot twice in, uh, you know, since March, but he also was shot in 2017 and quite seriously injured. That was in Langley. And the guy he was with, Tyler Pastuck, was killed and he was not the intended target. And then in 2018, people were hunting him again, and uh, they went to the wrong house in Surrey, and they shot and killed Surrey nurse Paul Bennett, you know, a family man who was a hockey coach, and he lived six houses in the other direction. It looks like they made the wrong turn at the corner and went in the wrong direction. So, you know, there are real consequences uh, for this guy's lifestyle, and other people mm-hmm. are are paying the price. How come? Why isn't he in jail? Like, what? What hasn't he well, been arrested? Well, you can't put someone in jail because people want to kill them. Uh, you know, I mean, there and being a member of a gang uh, per se is not uh, enough to get someone put in in jail. Right? right? There's a lot of limitations. Now, there is an ongoing criminal investigation by the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit. Uh, just a few days before he was shot in March, his West Kelowna house was um, the subject of uh, search warrants, and, you know, who knows what was found. Mm-hmm. So hopefully there are, you know, uh, charge recommendations are being made and that he will, in fact, uh, be charged at some point in the near future. He has a business, so there, um, does he operate a gym? He's got clientele. Obviously, this would not be good for business. No, it wouldn't be good for business, but you know, he if you if you watch some of his YouTube videos, he he tells a pretty compelling story about how he's made wrong decisions and he's changed his life around. Uh but all my information suggests that he is still involved uh in the drug trade. He has his own crew now. At one point in time, he was associated with the United Nations gang. Uh you know, I remember covering his uh a parole hearing of his going back more than a decade. 
Uh, and uh, at that point in time, you know, it came out at the parole hearing that he was um, associating inside prison with the United Nations gang members and people of the Dak Dure crew, uh, many of whom have since been shot and killed. So he is someone with long-time gang associations, so he is considered right now to be more of an independent with his own crew in the Okanagan. He, he was on Instagram taunting the people who didn't succeed at their task, which was to, you know, to assassinate him. And he was taunting them afterwards, going, you missed me, or he said something on, on Instagram about this. Yeah, he, he certainly did. That was after the March shooting. He was hit in the leg, and he was out uh, within a couple of days. It looks like this time, uh, you know, he was released very quickly, so he was not seriously injured. You know, however, the young guy he was with, uh, who, albeit is like an associate, 25 years old from Surrey, is facing life-threatening injuries. So, you know, this guy seems to walk away unscathed or with relatively minor injuries. Well, the people that are around him are the ones who are seriously injured or, you know, tragically in some cases killed. So he is a danger to the public. Mm -hmm. It's right that the police are warning people. The problem is it's likely not over yet. Is that taunting normal, that the gang people? Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, it really is in in gangland. In the current conflict on the lower mainland, and I'm not saying his, uh, you know, the targets, uh, on his back are related specifically to the Lower Mainland gang conflict. You know, we've had so mm-hmm. many shootings this year. Uh, but in that case, they're writing rap songs where they're calling each other out. They post all kinds of mocking things uh, on social media. And it really, I've written quite a bit about this, but it really escalates the tensions. And, and obviously, the not, which leads to more shootings and killings. And, and, and why would they want to put themselves in that situation? Why not, you know, operate their criminal behavior in a way that, you know, they, they, so they can make their money? Why push all this other stuff? It's a, it's a war so that this taunting helps that war? Well, he's obviously not the biggest player out there. You know, what we see is top echelon of organized crime in B.C., you know, who are basically the suppliers to all these gangs who are warring right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're not the ones making any noise. They're not the ones, uh, you know, posting YouTube videos or, quite frankly, getting arrested by police or being targeted for the most part. We have seen some higher level uh, gangsters shot in the last few months. You know, so, um, you know, he he's... He's someone who's making some money, but he's not a big player out there. And uh, the bravado is unfortunately part of the lifestyle. And this guy has it in spades. I mean, this likely won't end well, but how is the gang violence? We've been seeing a lot over the last year, but is it calming down, you know, outside of this case this weekend? Well, I would say that on the lower mainland, it has calmed down. You know, sometimes it's the same as the rest of us, and these guys are going away or hanging out somewhere else in the summer. Uh, ironically, we see a lot of them go up to the Okanagan to, you know, party. Uh, but, um, you know, we also know that police have really ramped up enforcement. They're following a lot of these guys around. Uh, you know, they're doing everything they can to prevent the shootings, uh, but they're also putting a lot of resources towards doing that so it likely isn't going to last forever. Definitely has reduced some of the shootings, you know, in the last two to three months. So even criminals take vacations, is that what you're saying? They certainly do, and sometimes that's when they're shot, is on vacation. We've seen, you know, several BC people shot when they've been vacationing in Mexico. And so the warning again for people, uh, if they need to know more information about this this, uh, person? 
Yeah, police say steer clear of Kyle Guyana. Certainly they would be directing those comments at those closest to him, uh, mm-hmm. family members, friends, associates, uh, but it's the rest of us too. If you see this guy when you're out and about, you know, go in the other direction, get away from him because these shootings have happened in very public places. They've happened in broad daylight and, uh, you know, they've been unsuccessful. So, you know, no doubt someone will be trying again. All right, Kim, thanks for filling us in. Anytime.